Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Emma Hodcroft. Emma is a molecular epidemiologist at the University of Basel in Switzerland and the co-developer of NextStrain. NextStrain is the open source toolkit built for real-time tracking of viral outbreaks. In the early days, teams led by Trevor Bedford at Fred Hutch and Richard Nair at Basel used it to track viral evolution of Ebola and Zika. Over time, the resource has been adapted to study flu, and now, of course, SARS-CoV-2. Lots of questions remain about this new virus. It's brand new to science. But a lot of what we do know from the early days can be attributed to next strain. This resource provides real-time information on where community transmission of the virus is occurring, where certain variations are coming from, the estimated size and scope of the outbreak, and what kind of effect our interventions may be having. It's a tremendous treasure trove, and the whole world is watching. In this episode, Emma provides some very clear, simple explanations of the basics of viral family trees, what we can learn from them, and what kinds of things she hopes to learn later this year. Before we dive in, I'd like to tell you about the sponsor of the long run, RareSight. RareSight delivers precision biology products and services for circulating tumor cell and multiplex tissue analysis designed to accelerate your cancer research. RareSight leverages a world-class assay design team and end-to-end platform with biomarker-enabling technology to provide CTC assays that are rigorously validated for accuracy and reproducibility. RareSight is the only full-service provider delivering custom assay development services long-term biobanking of patient samples, CLIA-validated CTC enumeration, multi-biomarker analysis, and single-cell retrieval for DNA sequencing. RareSite products for comprehensive CTC analysis include the AccuSite sample preparation system, RarePlex staining kits, and SiteFinder instruments, all of which are easily deployed in research labs worldwide. RareSite currently supports a wide range of global clinical trials with deep expertise, personalized service, and short turnaround times. Keep your research on track by engaging the RareSite services team at info at rarecite.com or at rarecite.com rc. And if you like listening to the long run, you'll love reading Timmerman Report. Go to timmermanreport.com and hit subscribe for a year or three months. Now, please join me and Emma Hodcroft on The Long Run. Emma Hodcroft, welcome to The Long Run. Hello, thank you so much for having me. Emma, I have to say, uh, I did a little bit of homework on you and I saw you did a three-minute thesis uh, uh, on YouTube. And I have to say, it was a real breath of fresh air. If everybody did a three-minute thesis like that, I could watch a lot more of them. Well, thank you very much. That was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed that. And I think it really helped uh, helped me to learn how to communicate science a little bit better because there's nothing like a time limit to teach you how to condense things down to the main message. Yes, yes. So it's uh, it's great to have you here on the podcast talking about your recent work with uh, Next Strain and Phylogeny. Maybe the place to start is just why would anyone want to build these viral family trees or to do this kind of evolution 
of viruses to, to, to study that? This is something that's built up kind of slowly over time as a growing field, um, in particular because sequencing is just so much more available now than it ever has been. So a lot of the early work in this field was done on HIV because people were really interested in knowing how HIV was spreading through different communities. And we were able to get short sequences out of HIV patients. But because it mutates so quickly, we could actually use these to see how the virus was spreading between different people. Since then, we've been able to move on to lots of different organisms to study um, how they change and move and different pathogens as they trace their way through populations. With the current coronavirus, we are really interested in knowing how it is spreading around the world. And while we can do this to some extent, just from talking to people and from just seeing the number of tests that come up positive, we often might not be able to really pinpoint when did this virus seem to arise or when did it seem to move from one country to another? And with genetics, we have a really unique power to be able to answer some of these questions that also isn't determined by our ability to go out and talk to every single person with the virus, which just isn't possible, of course. This is really interesting that uh, tracking a viral evolution is kind of a product of the better, faster, cheaper sequencing instruments. Uh, this is something that you just couldn't really practically do because viruses evolve so quickly, right? So it was a bit of a twofold problem. Um, one was just that getting sequencing, getting sequences was really difficult for a long time. So it was technologically difficult and it was really expensive. So you would only be sequencing pathogens where you knew or you really expected that there was some very concrete benefit to this. And you needed to have some cohort of people that you were maybe able to take a couple of samples in case it didn't work the first time. And certainly it was really hard to do in people who only were transiently infected, so something like coronavirus or flu that you only have for a few weeks. So this is one reason why HIV worked well, because people have it for their whole lives. So we were able to get these samples. Okay, so how did you first get involved in Next Strain? I actually moved to Basel to come and work on Next Strain. Um, I had the great pleasure of sharing an office with Trevor Bedford before he was famous. I've said that for a while, but I have to say now he's really famous. So I mean, even before he was science famous, he was doing a fellowship at the University of Edinburgh when I started my PhD. And rather unceremoniously, he was put into an office with a lowly PhD student that was me. But this means that I was aware of his work and his interest in visualizing data and trying to find better ways to see these associations between the sequences and the different things that viruses are doing from that time. So I, that wasn't when he invented Nextrain, but from following his work, I knew about Nextrain. And when I saw an opportunity to come and work on it, I was all in. At the time, what was in there? Was it viruses like West Nile or Ebola, flu? So Nextrain was originally founded to track flu because flu comes back every year and we actually have a pretty good network of people that sequence flu and provide those samples. So we can see what different strains are arising and we are part of the team that helps to choose the flu vaccine twice a year, hopefully being able to do that better and better into the future. Um, but when I joined the team, yes, we had many other pathogens as well. So we had Zika and um, some samples from mumps and measles, for example, and the Ebola outbreak was something that we followed on Nextrain, and the current Ebola outbreak uses Nextrain as well. So we've really been able to expand into lots of different viral pathogens lately, which is great. Our, our 
platform is quite flexible and we can pivot quickly to cover new pathogens, just like we've been able to do with the new coronavirus. Now, the next strain, it's been in place for a few years. You had this partnership as well with the Seattle flu study, which proved to be um, really important to the current outbreak. Can you talk a little bit about how um, things were set up between these two operations? I'm not part of the collaboration with the Seattle flu study myself, but you're exactly right that this is a super interesting story. So we do have people that work both on NextStrain and on the Seattle flu study. Just to give some background, the Seattle flu study is essentially a flu surveillance project. And what that means is they're just trying to better understand how flu moves through communities year after year. So they sent out a bunch of swabs to people. And if you felt like you had flu symptoms, or a runny nose or a cough, you could swab yourself and have it sent in and then we use those samples as kind of more random samples for um, what kind of flu is spreading and how people are getting it at different times of the year. Now, what, what really mattered recently is that there was an idea by the Seattle flu study that they should not only be testing those swabs for flu, but also for coronavirus. And this was in the time where getting a coronavirus test in the U.S. was really difficult because the CDC guidelines were super strict. So this made a big difference to be able to test essentially kind of random sample of the population that hadn't necessarily been to China or were in hospital. And when they started testing those swabs, they did find positives. Now, the thing where genetics made a big difference here is that from just the positive tests, you wouldn't know, well, maybe those people recently traveled to Italy or to China or somewhere else that was high risk at the time. And so maybe they've just been imported back to Seattle, but they haven't spread in the community. By sequencing those samples, we saw that they were actually really close to each other. A lot of them were identical. And what that told us is that these haven't been imported from different places around the world where they'd look really different, but it was spreading in the community of Seattle. And that was major news at the time because it showed us that, yeah, this virus is spreading under our noses in the U.S. and we need to start taking action. Yeah, I want to come to that dramatic moment uh, in a bit, but I still want to know a little bit more about like the mechanics of how you're what, what the workflow looks like here. I, I'm imagining that sample gets taken, the, the nasal swab, and maybe s some of it goes to a pathology lab and some co goes to you for the, the viral genomics. Um, and then you, all, you upload the, your findings onto your open source website. Your computational biologists are looking for patterns. Can you just talk a little bit about how, how do you guys do your work? So this is a, an important point, actually, because we ourselves don't do any sequencing. So NextStrain itself does not do any of the sequencing. We rely on other labs to take samples and to decide to do the sequencing for the viruses they've gathered, and then to share those sequences openly. So what people around the world do is they'll take their samples, usually, as you say, combined with some kind of diagnostic and other testing setting, and they'll make a decision which of these they want to sequence. They'll do the sequencing themselves, and then they upload their results, just as a computational file, a long list of ACTG, onto a database called GISAID. GISAID is really important because it collects and it curates these samples, and then it makes them available to scientists like us. If we were collecting these directly from the labs, we'd have to be talking to, I think, over 400 labs at the moment. So we wouldn't actually have time to do much else. So we really appreciate 
appreciate that there's one place that can do that coordination so that we can work with the results. We then check multiple times through the day to see if new SARS-2 coronaviruses have been available, and we download these and run them through our pipeline. Our pipeline does this looking for the tiny differences that can tell us whether sequences are more closely or more distantly related, and it makes these phylogenetic trees that you can see so beautifully displayed on our website. We then check these and look for different signals or different things that might be interesting to help analyze the sequences and then make these public on our website. So you're really that central clearinghouse. You're looking for the patterns, the matches, or the mismatches, how the virus might be moving around the world. Um, and it's really, it seems really important that you had this network in place with all those labs I mean, in Seattle being one, but there's a whole lot of others that you were able to really flip the switch pretty quickly to pivot toward, you know, this current pandemics, looking for that new SARS-CoV-2 sequence. So a lot of this has actually happened organically, which I think is one of the most inspiring things about this outbreak so far, is how well the scientific community has come together to tackle the virus. So these labs, a lot of them haven't contributed to GISAID or to NextStrain before. They've sought this out because they want to make sure they're contributing to the data that's helping to fight the virus. However, we at NextStrain are really lucky that we were in a position to pivot so quickly. We've been really well funded for the past few years years. And so we've been able to develop a code base that's flexible and modular so that we can easily adapt to any new organism that comes our way. We're also really lucky that we're well-funded enough that we have a big team, or actually we have a pretty small team, but it's enough people to do the job. If we had any fewer people, we'd really be struggling to keep up. So it shows the benefit that we need to invest in this kind of stuff beforehand so that it's ready when we need it, like now. Who are you funded by? So we're funded by core funding at the University of Basel in Switzerland, which is where I work, and at the Fred Hutch Cancer Research Center. And there's also some prize money from winning an Open Science Award for our visualizations a few years back. But not a whole lot of NIH or philanthropy? Um, not, not our core funding. Um, we do apply for grants, and I think that there's some in the works at the moment, particularly to support coronavirus. Uh, we've also done some work. So the Seattle Flu Project is, is funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Um, and so some of this supports some of our team members that work both on that and for NextStrain. Um, but in general, we, we've been really lucky to be well funded by the sources that we have. Got it. Um, Gates Foundation clearly understands the need to track um, how pathogens of various stripes travel around the world because that will influence our response, where to put our resources, what kind of testing and tracing uh, needs to be done. Um, okay, can you uh, walk me through that moment um, when, in, I guess this would have been in February, sort of like the holy shit moment, <laughs> when you all uh, realize that you've been able to test these samples at random in the Seattle community, and you can see there's been community transmission in the United States, and it stretches back for something like at least six preceding weeks. 
We aren't too confident in exactly how far the the samples stretch back, but it certainly could be up to six weeks. I think for a lot of us, this wasn't necessarily as big of an oh shit moment as it seems like it might have been, because actually the data that we were getting from other countries and the samples that we were getting already, they really pointed to the fact that I think we all would have would have been surprised if there wasn't sign of spread in the US already. It's a huge internationally connected country. And from what we were seeing in other countries, it just seemed really implausible that somehow the virus hadn't landed in the U.S. It seemed most likely that we just weren't detecting it because of the strict testing criteria. So for us, it was certainly still really surprising to see that we had evidence of this in Seattle. But I think that it wasn't quite as shocking as it might have been to the general public because we knew this virus was spreading that quickly. Okay, so you were a bit ahead of the rest of us. Uh, <laughs> I would expect you to be. Uh, now, did you? When did you first get the sequence from China? Was in that in the January ten eleven range? Yes, exactly. So the first sequences came out from China. I think it was the 10th or 11th of January. And I'd like to point out that this actually set the precedent, I think, for this whole pandemic. We've never had any infectious disease where sequences have been shared this openly and this quickly before. And I really think that what's made this, one of the things that's made this so different is the fact that scientists released this sequence so quickly. It kind of set this expectation that, okay, this is what we're going to do here. We're going to sequence and we're going to release those publicly and we're going to do it fast. And since then, we've had sequences pouring in every day. I referred to that holy shit moment in late February. I think this was a a blog post that Trevor wrote about community transmission in the United States. It's here. It stretches back several weeks. Uh, That set off a lot of alarm bells for people. I, I would say that was like a big moment for next strain kind of emerging on the, the world scene. Um, But you've made a whole bunch of other findings and you've published them quickly since then. What would you say some of those other big ones have been for for your team? Yes. So I do think that the Seattle moment was really important in that it helped people maybe directly understand some of the power of this viral genetics and why it's important, why we should do it. But things like this, as you say, are not the only things we've been able to discover. So I think that one of the most interesting things we were able to do is we had in March a few samples from Australia, Canada, England, and Germany that had no connection. The people did not know each other. They had no connection at all except for their sequences were really close together on the tree, which is interesting considering these people seem to be otherwise totally unrelated from such different places. A few of the Australian samples had travel histories and we could see that they had been to Iran, which we knew was having a huge outbreak at the time. Because the only thing that was similar in in this selection of samples was that some of them had been to Iran, we can actually conclude with a lot of confidence that the other people that link so closely together from totally different countries also had traveled to Iran or were infected by people who had traveled to Iran. So we were able to take a set of kind of 
unrelated samples and show that they all came from the big outbreak in Iran. The final thing that I think makes this really impressive is that at the time, we didn't have any samples from Iran. So we were actually able to learn a little bit about the Iran outbreak and how it was influencing the global outbreak from samples taken elsewhere that we knew must have come from Iran. And that's the kind of thing that would be really difficult to do without viral genetics and shows us the kinds of insights we can get that we wouldn't really be able to get any other way. RareSite delivers precision biology products and services for circulating tumor cell and multiplex tissue analysis designed to accelerate your cancer research. RareSite leverages a world-class assay design team and end-to-end platform with biomarker-enabling technology to provide CTC assays that are rigorously validated for accuracy and reproducibility. RareSight is the only full-service provider delivering custom assay development services, long-term biobanking of patient samples, CLIA-validated CTC enumeration, multi-biomarker analysis, and single-cell retrieval for DNA sequencing. RareSight products for comprehensive CTC analysis include the AccuSight sample preparation system, RarePlex staining kits, and SightFinder instruments, all of which are easily deployed in research labs worldwide. RareSight currently supports a wide range of global clinical trials with deep expertise, personalized service, and short turnaround times. Keep your research on track by engaging the RareSight services team at info at rarecite.com or at rarecite.com slash rc. Okay, now you brought up visualization earlier. Uh, now, I, I see these, you know, beautifully colored um, plots on the screen. I, I personally get a little bit dizzy looking at these things. Maybe <laughs> I just don't know how to look at them. H- how do you look at them and what, what makes for a good visualization? The best way to look at the next rain T, sorry, I'll start again. So the next rain visualizations are a little bit dizzying and it doesn't help that we have so many samples now so that they kind of are all on top of each other in this beautiful rainbow of colors. The things you remember when looking at a tree is that the dots at the ends are the actual samples and we usually plot these at the sample date that they were connected. So on the x-axis you can see it's a calendar. And then what we've done is we've looked at the genetic sequences and then we've then tried to match up these dots by connecting them to their closest neighbors. And we do this between two sequences and then another sequence, another sequence, all the way back to the root so that we can see how the whole tree draws together. In the main next strain view, the different colors are different countries around the world. So these help you show how globally connected that tree is. I think that some of the things that really help with next strain is the fact that it's so interactive. So if you haven't tried, I'd really recommend to go on the website. You can click on the circles to find out more about a sample. You can also click on the lines to zoom in on the tree. And often that can help because then you're looking at a few less sequences. And so you can get your head a little bit around what the structure is and how sequences are connected. You can also look at the map where we've tried to infer how the virus has spread over time between different countries. And you can do other things like change the way the tree is drawn or look at the mutations rather than the time scale. We've tried to make this really um, interactive and intuitive so that people can help to understand and and access the information that we can produce from this genetic data. 
Now you use the word mutation. A lot of people hear that and they kind of freak out and their, their mind goes into like sci-fi land about, you know, this turning into some, you know, bigger monster than it already is. <laughs> um, which, but that's not really the way to think about it, right? I mean, you're looking for these subtle uh, changes that can go one way or another in terms of its its virulence and, and its... Um, it's infectiousness. Exactly. So we tend to think of mutations a little bit like in the movie. If the movie says something like the virus has mutated, then you know that it's about to kill everyone. But real life is more boring, but also safer. So most mutations that a virus has actually have no impact on its function. Um, they're a good way to think of it is like typos. If I gave you a document and it had a couple of typos, you'd still be able to read it and the document would still mean the same thing. The second most likely scenario is that it's got too many typos and so it's just not readable at all and you're just going to throw it away. So this is another thing that can happen with viruses is that they'll get a mutation, but it's much easier to break something. So it'll make the virus not work and it'll just die out. There are really rare occasions where a mutation might be functional, but the exact impact of what this means is often very hard to say, and it's definitely not as straightforward as we seem to get in the media. These can be little changes that might have a tiny effect on the virus, but that really don't translate into much of a clinical difference between how someone might have an outcome, for example, whether they live or die or how severe the disease is. In general, though, with this virus, we haven't seen any signs that the mutations that have happened change anything about the clinical outcomes of patients. So I don't think this is something people need to be worried about. Good to know. Um, okay, so now as someone who looks at a lot of these phylogenetic trees of different viruses, is there any um, like general pattern here with this one that's that's just really different than the other ones you're used to looking at? So apart from the number of samples and the timescale over which they've been collected, this virus is actually very similar to a lot of the other viruses we've studied. I think maybe this surprises people a little bit because they feel like this virus is causing so much more trouble than ever before. It must be behaving somehow different from other viruses. But the main thing here is that for this virus, none of us have ever seen it before. So we have no immunity and it's spreading really quickly. So those two things combined means that the virus is able to infect more of us. However, on a kind of virus level, it's behaving exactly the way that most pathogens do. It's mutating at the same rate as other coronaviruses that we're familiar with, and it's spreading through the population in a way that's not unfamiliar that we recognize from other pathogens. The good news is that that means that we're actually pretty well equipped to interpret these trees and to kind of see and understand what the virus is doing. Doing because we've looked at other viruses that behave very similarly. But I think overall, um, it's hopefully reassuring for people to know that there's not anything intrinsic about this virus as far as its genetics or its patterns that it's making that is somehow different or alien. It's all things that we as people who study phylogenetics are familiar with. And so we're able to interpret that information. Okay. Now, as you've scaled up, I can imagine you must have had a whole lot of inbound interest, uh, new kinds of collaborators. Uh, I mean, I guess there's virology, of course, epidemiology, but then there's like immunology and other people that, uh, what kind, can you talk just a little bit about the, the kinds of, you know, more heads <laughs> coming together uh, around your, your work and asking interesting questions? 
So we've definitely never had a time where we've had this much interest in Next Train as we have right now. And that's really incredible and certainly something that we're super glad that we've been able to be so useful that it's attracted so many people. We actually have worked with a few groups, um, but mostly only in viral phylogenetics because we don't tend to get the information, for example, that you would need to do virology or immunology or clinical studies. So most of the samples come to us with pretty limited information. So just the sample date, the country and the location where it was taken, and then maybe some information like age and gender, but that's all. And if you want to do a really detailed study, you're going to need a little bit more information than that. However, Nextrain really exists to pull this information together at a really high level to look at the big picture items. And we are very careful that we don't want to kind of steal credit or steal the results from the teams who've actually gone to the trouble of getting these samples, which often, you know, is non-trivial, especially for low and middle income countries. So we think it's really important that they retain that detailed information so that they can do studies that they can publish and get credit for the work that they've done. However, we have had some great collaborations with places like California and of course the Seattle Flu study and labs in uh, Connecticut at Yale, where we've looked at the phylogenetic picture and how the sequences might have spread within and around America. So we're always excited to work with new groups to see what we can tell on those country level and global level um, pictures. Okay. You mentioned that you're pretty well funded and you got a pretty good sized team. Uh, I get, you know, you're, you're sending out tweets in different languages. So presumably you got people who speak uh, multiple languages. That's good. Are, are you suffering from any sort of bottlenecks or shortages like we hear about in other uh, parts of the scientific enterprise? I think that we're pretty lucky because we have such a great team and we have enough team members to handle this. But this has certainly been a pretty crazy time for us. The amount of data that we're processing now is huge. It's thousands of sequences. So we've had to really stay on top of our pipeline to make sure that we can make that run efficient and happen in you know a few hours instead of days. We're also dealing with huge volumes of information that we're trying to get out as fast as possible. Normally, you know, delaying processing some new files by a few days isn't really make a difference here or there. Now we're trying to get that information out in just a few hours. So we've had to make sure that we have good, robust pipelines that can be run by multiple people so that we can be pushing data out all day long and all night long um, when we take over in different time zones. As well as that, we've had to make some updates to our interface to make sure that it's as accessible and can support the amount of traffic that we get these days. And as you pointed out, we're working towards making our website better as far as being available in more languages. And a lot of this has been thanks to the work of volunteers, both the translators and people who volunteered code contributions to our open source platform so that we can make these changes as quick as we can. How much has your website traffic surged since about oh January? So I actually haven't checked recently, but I know that in the first month or so, we were up like 7,000%. And I know that our translations of our narratives and our narratives, which are these weekly situation reports we put out that kind of highlight what's happened in the last week in a either on a global scale or on a regional scale, those get tens and thousands of hits every week. So we really are reaching a huge audience. That's great. 
How much time would you say that you and your colleagues spend on debunking some of the nonsense and misinformation that's out there? Like, like I know there was the one about the, the virus being in San Francisco back in November. This is something that unfortunately we've also had to adapt to. And this is new for most of us because I don't think any of our work before now really had many conspiracy theories tied to it. And now I would say that unfortunately it's a big part of our job. So I would say that it it varies a little bit depending on what conspiracy theory is kind of the hot topic of the week. But I'd say I spend at least a few hours every week trying to clamp down on misinformation. Unfortunately, as Nextrain itself has become more popular. Um, We've also had our images taken out of context to provide uh, quote unquote evidence of some of these conspiracy theories by not accurately representing what they mean. This is really disappointing, but we've been lucky so far in that we've been able to explain to people how this is wrong and stop some of these, but it is unfortunately a constant battle. What um, would you say, if you can think ahead to the, the rest of the year, I know it's hard, time is kind of compressed these days, but if you look at your research agenda for the rest of 2020, what's a couple of things that you really want to know, but you're not there yet? One thing that's going to be really interesting is being able to get some of the earlier samples, if at all possible, from the outbreak. So we didn't, you know, most countries, we think that the virus was there and circulating before authorities were testing for it in a widespread way. So as I said earlier, they were probably testing for high risk cases that maybe were coming back from China and had symptoms, but they weren't doing much generalized population testing, particularly if you didn't have symptoms, because we didn't know how much, um, then that that you could have this and be asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic. So we, to, if we, if, sorry. So for example, we might be able to get samples from things like the Seattle flu study, but that we're operating elsewhere. So it's very normal that people are taking samples to test for things like flu or other respiratory viruses. If we're able to get a hold of those samples from January and February in the US and Europe, we might be able to get some more of those early importations of the virus that would help us maybe understand a little bit better how this spread and maybe what routes did the virus find um, the most helpful for when it was spreading between different countries. I'm also hopeful that we'll be able to scale up just the number of samples that we have for a lot of countries. In Switzerland, where I am, we only have about 70 samples right now, which isn't enough to tell us very much at all about the outbreak. But I think that it would be really informative to have a better understanding of our local outbreak here. And I think that's true of a lot of countries. So I'm hoping that sequencing in general will scale up. A final point for that is how important this is going to be for low and middle income countries. We've had an amazing response from lots of countries in Africa and South America and other places where traditionally sequencing might not be so accessible, but they could really benefit from this technology if they were able to scale up sequencing. Unfortunately, in a lot of these countries, the the money and the technology is not so readily available. So I hope that these countries are still able to benefit from sequencing. More samples, more scale. It's not really a matter of like hypothesis driven research agenda. It's like you get more samples and more scale and like more things are going to present themselves to you. 
I think that's often how we work. Now, that's not to say that we never have a hypothesis, but for example, it would be very interesting to know if we can tell a little more about how the virus was introduced to the states and maybe which samples it moved between first. At the moment, we probably would hypothesize that that's uh, California and, and maybe Washington, but it would be great to have early samples to really show this for sure and kind of nail that down. It would also be really interesting to see if we can understand how this spread around Europe. We know that because of Europe's openness and kind of the Schengen zone where everyone moves and travels so freely, we know the virus spread really quickly. But it would be great to have a little more resolution to understand how quickly and, for example, how much before we started testing was the virus there. At the moment, we don't really have a good sense for that. But with more samples, we could maybe get a good idea of exactly when it arrived in Europe. Well, that's another one of your findings or, or yours and your collaborators that the New York cluster was largely seeded from Europe, right? Yes, exactly. So we see that a lot of the New York samples kind of nest within European samples, which tells us that these are transmissions from something that was probably circulating in Europe and then jumped to New York. Um, it would be interesting to know if there were multiple jumps, for example, or, it, or just one. From the data we have right now, it seems like there were multiple. Uh, it seems like this virus spread so quickly that it probably actually went back and forth even. Emma, you mentioned low-income countries, uh, and they don't always have the infrastructure in place to capture these sequences. Is there anything that you're doing now to, um, to help with, uh, with increasing the, the amount of samples and the, the volume of sequences that we can process from there? So something that really shocked me that I learned when we started working with the coronavirus outbreak was that there were labs around the world that have the expertise needed to sequence, they have samples ready, and they have the equipment that you need to do sequencing but they don't have funding to actually do the sequencing. In science, all of our funds are put towards a specific project, whatever we're supposed to be doing. So it's really hard to take money away to use it for something else, even if it's a pandemic. And this is even worse in low and middle income countries because they really don't have any money to move around. We've started an initiative with the Fred Hutch Institute where we're trying to raise money to help labs that are otherwise completely ready to start sequencing have the funds they need so that they have the reagents and the other disposable kit to do these sequences. This is really critical because a lot of these countries are still having their first few cases and sequencing can be really informative here. So we're trying to raise kind of relatively small grants, about $20,000, to send out to these labs so they can start sequencing straight away without having to wait for longer-term funding by their governments. This kind of bridge funding should allow them to generate over 100 sequences over the next few months and capture and share that vital information from sequencing from many countries around the world. $20,000 is not a lot of money. And you're saying you can get 100 sequences uploaded, which is more than you currently have in all of Switzerland. Exactly. So we could get countries in Africa and South America, for example, online, giving us real-time sequencing and informing us about the, how the pandemic is spreading between these countries in these places for really not that much money. And it could make a big difference to their response, which everyone is concerned about. Okay, last thing I want to ask you, Emma, uh, kind of a personal thing. You're something like five years into your postdoc. You're part of this well-renowned team. Uh, what's next for you? 
That's a good question. Unfortunately, my position here at the University of Basel is formally supposed to end in November. So the future is certainly an uncertain thing for me at the moment. I'm hopeful that that will be extended because of uh, my normal work. Clearly, it has been totally put on the back burner while we deal with coronavirus. So I'm hoping to, to resume that. What I was working on before is something called enterovirus D68, which people might have heard of in the media. It's been a problem over the past four or five years where it's been coming in the autumn of even numbered years, so 14, 16, 18, and we expect another recurrence this autumn. And mostly it just causes a respiratory illness. But in the last few years, it's been more severe and it has also paralyzed some children. So it's been in the media for that. We've been able to do really big studies on this, and we've uncovered some really interesting patterns about how this virus might be transmitting between children and adults. It would be great to continue this work, but I think that the main message this underscores is we've known about this enterovirus D68 since 1964, but we never paid any attention to it because it just didn't seem like it was that important. However, now that sequencing is more available, and now that we're able to gather up these huge databases, we're learning a lot from this this virus, even though it isn't a threat to most people. What I'd really love to do is to study more of these kind of boring viruses. These viruses that come back every few years and that cause maybe cold-like symptoms, but we don't tend to study because we don't think they're a big threat to our health. However, the things we learn from these viruses, like how they spread and how they take advantage of differences in immunity, how they move between children and adults, and how well vaccines work and for how long, these are things that can really be helpful to know and can influence our response when a pandemic hits. But we need to do that research before we need it. So I would really like to see um, increased funding and interest, increased interest in creating long-term databases where we can study these boring viruses so that they can show us so much more about how viruses work so we'll be that much better prepared when the next pandemic comes. It's really a great point because we have this tendency uh, to uh, get alarmed about an outbreak in the middle of it, like, say, Ebola from a few years ago. And then, you know, when it passes, we kind of we all move on and we, we lose interest. Um, but um, that that kind of pattern um, makes us vulnerable. And uh, so I'm really thankful that uh, we've had funders with the vision to invest in things like Next Strain and the Seattle Flu Study and, and a lot of things that are just ongoing efforts uh, and you know supporting research like what you say into boring viruses <laughs> that might someday not be so boring. We ought to be ready for them. So um, Emma, we're, we're out of time. Thank you so much for joining me today on The Long Run. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. See you next episode.